From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanne Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. It's Monday, Zach. How was your weekend? What have you been drinking? Well, you know, it's interesting. We have had a really kind of very pleasant stretch of weather here, which is always nice. You know, sunny, not too hot. Uh, it's good. Yeah. It's good. It, you know, feels like a, a small miracle every time uh, that we get some of that weather. Um, and so for me, when, when the weather is in this range, you know, there's a lot of to me, there's like a lot of possibilities for things to drink when it's sunny and warm, but not like excruciatingly hot. Um, and for me, you know, it's like obviously could lean towards some rosé, some lighter beers, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, even some some cocktails that could recommend themselves. But it's really for me, and I think I actually mentioned this on a previous podcast. It's like it's like long drink weather, um, by which I mean like not specifically like the long, long drink. drink. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I just mean like it's a it's a time for me to have like something with a fair bit of like either soda water soda can i say those words soda water or (laughs) tonic or something like that in it and Mm -hmm. to me there's like one of the fun things about the modern drinks landscape is there's a lot of cool uh spirits and liqueurs out there that i think really play nicely in that format either just kind of as is or with a little bit of modification so sometimes one of my favorite things to have is like a little bit of like amaro and soda or chartreuse Mm -hmm. and soda uh, or Suze and soda, like those kinds of things to me are really appealing. Cause like you get a little bit of obviously the booze, you get a little bit of the flavor, but it's also diffused through this like more substantial drink that is easier to sip on. It's a little bit more hydrating. Um, and like for me again, this time of year, I do a lot of like mid afternoon sitting outside kind of drinking, which is really nice. A really pleasant, part of the season so the 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 standout to me and there have been several but like we've just kind of started blackberry season here and Mm -hmm. while there are lots of great blackberry drinks that you can make including one of my favorites which is a blackberry margarita also the blackberry bramble that we've talked about on the pod Mm -hmm. um, that i had relatively recently out at a bar actually one of my favorite things to do is to um do like a little chambord and soda with some just some blackberries kind of like floating in it i don't like break them up or anything i'm not trying okay. to like fully create like a you know like i'm you're not muddling them i'm not muddling them i don't want all the like blackberry mess in there you just I want just, a little snack yeah it's like a little snack it's like a little it I, at least in my eyes adds a little bit of flavor and sometimes i'll kind of round it out with like a touch of gin or something like not a full mm. maybe like a half ounce or something just to kind of because Chambord's not super boozy in the first place, but like just to kind of bump it up a touch. And like, it's just such a refreshing drink. So I've been, been sipping good. on those. How about you, Joanna? Chambord is um, raspberry. Yeah, I mean, black raspberry, which black, how that's black different black than a blackberry is. I'm not right. a, I'm not sufficiently skilled at horticulture to tell you the difference, but <laughs> they look yeah. like, they look like blackberries to me. Yes. Yeah. That sounds delicious. I think I'd like to try that. Cause you know what we do a lot at home? We, um, we make, I guess this is different. We make cure. And oh yeah, Cure Royale. Yeah, um, that's Chambord, right? No, that's a uh, no. It's a uh, creme de, creme de uh, cassis. cassis. Yeah, yeah, but that sounds nice too. So this past weekend, we went to a local brewery called Transmitter, um, and I had a few nice beers there. Golden Ale, I think it was a buckwheat strong ale. That was good. And then otherwise, we made some gimlets, and I love a gimlet. I gotta say, I think it's a delicious drink. I was never a gin person back in the day. Like I always preferred, I think, like whiskey cocktails, Mm -hmm. but more recently have 
in, have uh, enjoyed gin drinks. I think I'm a gin person now. Oh, there you go. Very yeah. cool. I, I have a, a good drink. <laughs> I actually have a question since you were sort of mentioning the, I guess what what I would say like the the sort of beers that you're into right now. Yeah. I think we've talked about this on the pod before. Maybe this was even before you joined. Do you feel like there is like a quintessential summer type of beer to you? Oh, um, I don't know. I Yeah, I think I think of like a Mexican style lager. Okay. Like the, I think the lighter, definitely the lighter beers. Kolsch okay. maybe feels like a good summer beer. What else? What I don't know. What, do you, do you have thoughts on that? I don't know that I have like a distinctive like. Here is the thing. To me, it is one of the times of year when I really enjoy like a fruited sour. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm just like in full fruit mode in the summer because it's just like, you know, not that there aren't tasty and perfectly fine fruits available year round most of places, but like to me, it's like such a peak fruit season locally, whether it's stone fruit or berries, things like that. That like. Those kinds of flavors, even in a even in beer, are kind of what I'm looking for. And maybe that starts in the spring and can extend out into fall to me. But like, I don't know. I, yes, it's true that like certainly like a light lager or just something that's easy to think. But to me, those like almost like those beers. And this isn't meant as a criticism of them at all. It's like those beers are like the thing you drink while you do something else. To me, and if I want a beer that I'm going to think about, I guess in this time of year, I, maybe a fruited sour is kind of where I'm yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think that makes sense. I just I'm I can't drink sours. Anymore. Fair enough. I really can't. I want to. Evan always orders them, or he gets uh, he'll get like goza a goza or something. But um, I just I can't. I find them too tart mm-hmm. um, for my palate. Fair enough. These days, <laughs> so anyway, nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, well, I think people listening care. Broadly, they'll know not to send you any samples of sour beers. They want uh, anyone to be happy about it. And then we'll scratch the uh, sour beer tasting for next week, I guess. Yeah. So, well, I guess not really on the topic, but we're just going to pivot hard because what that's what we do here. So the thing I wanted to us to talk about this uh, this week, this episode, was uh, actually a piece that didn't run on Vimepare. I know, shocking. We do occasionally read other publications. Uh, it's actually a piece that ran on uh, at the New York Times. Uh, you all may have heard of it. Mm-hmm. And it was a piece called the 21st century shakedown of restaurants. And it was about the sort of ongoing conflicted, let's say relationship that restaurants and bars have with influencers. And, you know, it's not really fully spelled out in the piece, what exactly defines an influencer, but, you know, suffice to say people with a lot of followers on pick your social media platform of choice, uh, but probably Instagram or TikTok at this point, And who aren't like, Otherwise, sort of like seen as, you know, journalists or whatever, right? People who are, or, you know, who are in the trade, they're, you know, they're influencers, right? And the piece goes into all these different ways in which, you know, restaurants and bars have been burned by influencers sort of coming in and demanding free food and drink and then, you know, maybe not providing the sort of posts or coverage that the bar or restaurant has been led to believe they will receive or sort of half-assing it or just kind of having an endless stream of demands. And I thought this was interesting on two fronts. One is like, this is a complaint and a sort of a topic that has come up many times ever since really the rise of Instagram and the the rise of influencers, which is now like over a decade ago, really. Yeah. And especially Mm -hmm. 
um, I think in this post-pandemic, very fragile landscape, I think restaurants are often, you know, there's there's just maybe a little more fear around, not fear is the way to put it, a little more sensitivity around anything that could result in bad publicity or and or feeling like you're getting scammed. So, I, I, Joanne, I know you obviously read this piece as well. First, like, what were your takeaways? Yeah, I think that this piece, uh, well, not resonates with me because I I can't say that I've experienced it or even been at a restaurant where there's been a table of influencers getting a free meal or anything like that. Um, But I think it is, I personally feel it's kind of an unfortunate evolution of social media and coverage for restaurants and establishments Um, Because, yeah, like you said, a lot of restaurants do end up getting taken advantage of. They're giving free meals um, and they're kind of at the whim of the influencer, the person doing this um, as to whether that the review will be positive or the the content that they create from this experience will be positive or negative. And I yeah, I think that feels fundamentally different from journalists going to or like a reviewer or a food critic or something going in to review a restaurant um somebody who arguably has more mm, you know experience expertise than somebody who fancies them i think the biggest problem here is that it's people who kind of fancy themselves influencers who have a certain amount number of followers um who have given them this inflated sense of importance and uh they don't really have any business kind of critiquing these establishments um and yet so much hinges on seemingly hinges on it for the restaurant so i think it's just kind of it's an unfortunate part of culture (laughs) these days like social media culture it is a part of our culture restaurant culture restaurant and drinks culture um and, you know, we we kind of discussed this before, but as as a publisher, when we're looking at new places, part of me is is wary of the places that are covered pretty extensively on social media by influencers. Like for me, that kind of raises some flags as to the actual quality of the restaurant. Um, and, you know. It feels like those types of recommendations absolutely 100% need to be vetted. Yeah, I think there's so much to dig into here, and I almost don't know exactly where to start. But I think that one thing to discuss is the sort of unanswered question a little bit to me in this piece, which is like, because like I think the question, the complaint or the, the sort of top point of like influencers perhaps being less able to or less trained to render a sort of critical judgment on a restaurant or bar than a reviewer that's presumably like you know a professional who's paid by a publication of some sort is i think i'm not sure that that particular criticism holds a lot of weight with me and i think it's for two reasons one is i love restaurant reviews like i enjoy reading them i've enjoyed reading them since i was a kid because i am sicko like that But I also recognize that I think for a lot of people, it's like the same thing with film reviews, right? Someone whose life is centered around reviewing movies is not necessarily going to approach a movie with the same 
mindset that the average moviegoer is going. And the things that those people might be looking for in a film sure. are very different than what the average moviegoer might be going. And obviously we see the plenty of divergence between what movies sell the most tickets versus what movies get the best critical scores all the time. Yeah. But I also think that sometimes food reviewers are in a similar boat where they're just not necessarily reviewing in the same through the same lens as the average diner. And sometimes those things align more so. Certain kinds of restaurants are, you know, frankly, like geared towards the kind of person who really cares what Pete Wells thinks about them. And other restaurants are not. And that doesn't mean that one restaurant is like doing it right and one's doing it wrong. And I don't mean to say that you were saying that. I'm just saying that that I think is a a, a misconception sometimes that's out there. And so I think saying like, oh, well, you know, this influencer doesn't have the same training. So they're like, who cares what they think? Well, a lot of people do. I think the bigger question, the harder one that's, that's maybe the one's maybe harder for restaurants to vet and where they often get, they can get taken for a ride, even if the influencer does sort of do the thing they said they were going to do is how much does that person, that influencer drive business? How much, frankly, influence do they really have? And yeah. some of that's about like fake, you know, follower accounts and like, you know, kind of to what extent are they really like actually driving business? But there's no doubt I can tell you firsthand of, you know, examples that or secondhand, I guess, of examples of people I know who have places that have, you know, where someone who's influential has come in and posted about it and they see an uptick in traffic. You know, is that yeah. permanent? Maybe not. Does it like make their business, take their business from failing to succeeding? Certainly not. But like, you know, you know it when suddenly people start coming in and all ordering the same thing, like they're they're getting that from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the piece also says, you know, there are no, no rules to this game and deciding not to play is less and less an option. So it seems like restaurants don't really have a choice. Like they do have to because it must be, you know, meaningful to their business to g give these experiences from time to time. And I think this is probably especially pertinent to new establishments too, right? Well, certainly there, you're, you're in a much bigger sort of range of outcomes when you're a new establishment, right? Like you could be a huge success. And that's, again, this is true with rev critical reviews as much as it is with influencers, right? You get a great review from the from the food critic and you're probably going to have a lot more bookings and, you know, be much busier. And if you get panned, you're probably going to close. And I don't know that influencers carry the same weight exactly, in part because I think it's un understood by lots of followers, if maybe not all of them, that a lot of the things that influencers posting about are things that they've been at a minimum given for free, if not outright paid to paid for. promote. Yeah. But again, like so much of a, a lot of people's discretionary spending and activities is, you know, kind of built around living or cultivating a lifestyle that, that resonates with the aesthetic on Instagram and TikTok that, you know, in a, kind of coldly calculating way, I'm not sure that a restaurant should care. Like, so what if the person is coming and they don't really, I mean, I shouldn't say it this way. They probably, people probably care because most people open restaurants and bars because they're passionate and they want to do something that's meaningful to them. And financial success is an important part of that, but it's probably not the sole driver for most people who open places. But at the same time, I think you can get yourself in trouble as an operator if you are too idealistic about what you're doing. And obviously, some of that is about maybe not letting yourself be shook down by every single influencer or purported influencer who walks through the door. You probably should, you know, have if you yourself are not social media literate and not super confident in that area, like 
if you can't hire someone, have a please have a person in your life who you can go to and be like, hey, can you look at this person's account and like give me a sense for whether you think this is this shit is real? Are all the comments on their posts like the same generic things that a group of like self-promoting people can, you know, do to build, you know, influence and follower account and stuff like that? Or like, does this like this person really truly um is who they say they are. You know, maybe if they've posted about other restaurants in your city, maybe you know one or two of those operators and be like, hey, well, how did this person treat you? Like, what did they do? Did they, did you see a return on investment? Like, there are ways to vet these things. I get it's hard sort of when someone pops in in the moment and is like, look, I have 20,000 Instagram followers. I want free drinks. Like, that's a weird, awkward moment. And I don't know, I, I, you know, I don't know how you handle that, especially if you're like, just the manager on duty or not the operator or the owner. Like it's hard to make those calls, but like, I do think that being social media savvy in a lot of ways, is it, is it as much a critical skill as an operator as anything else these days? Denying its importance is I think just, it's just having your head in the sand. Yeah, I think, and I, I think that's kind of, I agree with you, but I also think it's super unfortunate. (laughs) Um, And I guess what I was trying to say before is that, I think there's this thing that's happening right now that's like, oh, this place is all over TikTok. Like, you got to go. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) Because the people who are taking to TikTok to tell me about the garlic bread that they had at this new restaurant, like, I don't care. um, Because I don't trust any of them. And that's what I'm trying to say. Because I think back in the day, before the meteoric rise of social media, you know, restaurants cared if this is this is whatever this is maybe bratty or whatever but like restaurants cared if like editors from food magazines came in and that was really important because that potentially meant that they could be covered in a food publication and that was really meaningful and now it's just like you have any person off the street coming in and being like i have this tremendous influence on twenty thousand followers on tiktok and you have to cater to me. And I just think that's kind of stinky. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because I think that there's, there's a, a a way to look at the previous model and be like, how well did it really work for restaurants? And I think there's, sure, there's a good question there, too. I think plenty of unscrupulous magazine editors definitely ate free a lot of places because oh they still do Zach. yeah they still do mm-hmm. and so to me i don't know that like just because those people are on the masthead of a publication i don't know that inherently means that what they were doing was somehow more noble maybe it was a little easier for restaurants to control i guess there were i think also just fewer right? yeah probably although In volume <laughs> yeah but i also think that the other piece of it that's really interesting to me and where i maybe disagree with you about some of the benefits of the modern current model is like even if in a sort of idealized version of the like oh someone from a a food magazine comes in and is like oh wow like i had this incredible dish at such and such restaurant and like let's write about this restaurant or let's do a feature piece about that dish or something i mean you know better than i do joanna what's the lag time on that a year 18 months (laughs) right like that restaurant could have already gone out of business by the time the fawning piece finally runs in the glossy magazine because magazines operate on their own borderline glacial calendar versus like the immediate (laughs) pop of like an influencer or someone with a lot of followers posting on social about this thing they had you might have people coming in that night ordering it the next night for sure like we live in such a fast moving churning society and and restaurant and bar ecosystem where like you know it's like it's really funny like i was thinking about this and prep for this and then sort of escaped me and then i was reminded of it again and by your comments like 
I was involved in opening a couple of restaurants in Seattle over the years. And obviously Seattle is a, you know, its own market. It has, you know, some similarities with, uh, with New York, but also some very different ones, including like not anywhere near the sort of influence of an individual reviewer that New York has with the Times food critic and stuff like that. But like, yeah. you know, you're opening a new restaurant, you have a social, I'm not a social media strategy, you have a media strategy and a publicity strategy at this point. This is pre-social media, really, or before social media was meaningful in this regard. And, you know, it was something that of the two restaurants I helped open, one of them was much more, let's say, comfortable being like, here's what we're going to do. Here's our overall launch program that included like, we're going to try and get, you know, earned media through reaching out, you know, through press releases, through interviews, through stuff. They created a blog to cover some of the opening process. And like, it was all this stuff, right? And again, this is like, now seems pretty prosaic, but you know, this was 15 years ago. It was a little more out of the ordinary then. And I don't know to what extent it really, truly moved the needle, but like it was the strategy. And the other restaurant was like, I don't know. We'll just kind of like let people know that we're open and like hope that people show up. Mm-hmm. Kind of. That's a little bit over oversimplifying it, but like yeah. much less of a comprehensive strategy, especially like a digital strategy. And I just think, like I said, I think you have to, to operate in the modern restaurant and bar economy. You kind of have to be at least conversant in the ways that people yep. engage with and talk to each other about or, you know, um, consume media about what you're doing. And if it's on TikTok, even though I kind of agree with you that, like, it's kind of dumb and not really for us, but it is for a lot of people. And I think... Us geezers? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. We won't... But, like, well, we're just, you know, there are people of all generations who don't necessarily vibe with social media in the same way as others. But, like, yeah. if a lot of your audience is going to be people who are getting some degree of their, you know, they're they're making some of their purchasing decisions not just in this category but they're buying clothes they see on Instagram they're buying yeah. you know furniture they see on TikTok etc like you just can't kind of you have to be savvy and you have to kind of accept that that's just where we are yeah it is a different and new kind of consumer i agree i think um it seems like it would ultimately this piece kind of makes it seem like the influencers are you know a somewhat necessary evil um and that it has to be a part of a restaurant's approach to marketing yeah and we definitely see it i mean we we get plenty of emails from publicists pitching new restaurants and uh we've you know been invited to events where there are plenty of influencers who have been invited as well so yeah i think it is it's just it's a it's an interesting part of where we're at uh, with hospitality yep. um, these days. And, and I, I do feel for, I feel for restaurants and operators. Um, but, but I agree that it has to be accounted for in the marketing strategy. Yeah. I think the, the other thing I will say about this is reading this piece gave me strong, like owners complaining about Yelp vibes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't disagree that like, there's a lot of shit on Yelp that sucks. And there's a lot about Yelp that sucks and has been bad for certain operators. And you can get kind of fucked over by a bad review there. But I think that what happened with, has happened with Yelp over time is like, I think your average somewhat, like, I think it's influence has waned because people have realized like, oh yeah, it's just kind of like what some person thinks. And most of the time people are only motivated, you know, 
either if they have a really bad experience or sometimes if they have a really good experience. And that, like most things, unless you're forced to leave a review, most people don't bother, right? That's why we're yeah. constantly all being constantly harangued by every last thing we interact with to fill out a survey, provide feedback, <laughs> et cetera. And if you actually do, you're one of the like, you know, 0.1% who do, if, unless you're forced to. And I think that we, we may already be seeing a sort of evolutionary adaptation by both social media consumers and perhaps by restaurants and whatnot that are like, okay, like the influencer population is like, you know, there's there's the good, the bad, and the overwhelming mass that are kind of like neither. They're just like, would like a free drink. And, <laughs> you know, you can decide how much or how little you want to play ball with that crowd if you're the kind of person or the kind of establishment that's being hit up on the regular. But I think that, you know, in the same way that a bar or restaurant should have a budget for marketing, a budget for advertising, a budget for, you know, complimentary food and drink that you give to guests for a variety of reasons, like, you should probably have an influencer budget. Figure out what it is, Mm -hmm. build it into your pro, into your marketing. And then, you know, if you have an overwhelming problem, tell people they have to apply or, or they have to, they can't just show up. They have to contact you in advance. I mean, I think someone in the piece mentions that, like, you know, tell them to schedule things with you. Like, that's all doable. But I think... You know, the one thing that's true, I will say this about influencers, if they do drive business is like, you know, you can assure yourself that they're going to say something complimentary, right? You know, getting the food critic in is great until like their fish is overcooked and the (laughs) server forgets to bring them their second glass of wine and suddenly you're getting panned. Like, there's no way out of that. You know, you can't just slip them a free meal and be like, uh, can you, you know, can you, can the next post be a little more complimentary? Um, So, you know, maybe that's not great for and consumers and you all should be cognizant of that when you're taking recommendations from people who are, you know, clearly if not getting paid directly are getting comped, you know, that can affect judgment. Yeah. But, or at least can, you know, determine what doesn't get said, let's put it that way. But I think it's definitely true that like, you just kind of have to play the game because that's how the game is played these days. Yeah. If you, if you were to open, help open a restaurant now, is that something you would take into account i think i'd have to i think like i said i think you'd have to have a budget and a strategy and i think includes like looking at your local market and being like who are the people who are the influencers in the same way that when you open a bar or restaurant you you know you send a pr you know releases hopefully to the to the people on the journalism side who are influential or who you would hope would cover it or come or say something positive um you would want to have a good like kind of, you know, and good PR agencies will have this in any given market, right? They'll have a, a, a network and a landscape or an understanding of the landscape of, of influencers. And if they don't, they're probably not doing a good job. Like that's just yeah. the reality of it. I don't know, like I said, that it's easy always to quantify exactly how much business a given influencer or even a broader influencer campaign truly drives, but I don't think you can ignore it. It's just yeah. got to be a part of your marketing plan. Yeah. A well-rounded approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. Let us know what you think if you read the article or if you have thoughts about influencers. Or if you are one. Or if you are an influencer um, at podcast at mindpair.com. And Zach, have a great week and I'll talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, 
however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.